0: Continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke, looking at Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Uh, we normally speak of this as the temptation of Jesus. As you find that passage, whether in your own Bibles or in the Bibles there in your seats, page 859, I'll remind you that uh, Jesus' miraculous birth was foretold by angels. He's shown his devotion to the Father and the temple. Uh, We looked uh, two weeks ago at his baptism and then his family line last week. And this morning, as he goes into the desert to prepare for his earthly public ministry, we find him tempted and assailed by the evil one. Let's pay attention to God's word, to what our Savior has done that we might respond. With the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As we prepare to spend some more time in this passage, I just want to share with you that in my study and reflection leading up to this time, I'm just astounded by the depth of God's word. And I'm just going to confess, there are so many things we could speak of this morning from this passage about the nature of Christ the reality of temptation, spiritual warfare, and so much more, more than we have time for, because the depth of God's word is endless. But I will commend maybe one work for you if you, after this morning, think, well, how does Satan go about tempting us? How might we respond to temptation? There's a simple book that's been around for a long time. It's called The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. It's just a wonderful reflection, uh, for us to think about how we respond to temptation, and often from places unaware. But let me ask that the Lord would bless our consideration of the word together. Would you join me? Lord, we come to this passage, and we pray that you would bless our consideration of it this morning. Lord, on one hand, we see the overt victory of Christ and want to rejoice in it, And yet, at the same time, Lord, we see ourselves in this passage and how many times we have been in situations of far less trial, of far more ease, and we have fallen short. Lord, we pray that you would show us your truth, that we would respond to your truth, and that your truth would have its way with us by your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's one thing to uh, prepare for the big day, the big game, the big show, the big play, but it's another thing uh, for the house lights to go down, for the seats to be filled, and to actually perform. You know, that's why in the acting world they have dress rehearsals. And uh, why know how important they can be? Because they show how prepared you really are. In college, one semester I had was part of a production of Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. Uh, It was not a big part, but I was pretty excited because there was a sword fight, and I got to use a sword. And so beyond memorizing lines, I spent a lot of time choreographing with the other actor who I would be stage fighting, someone uh, who had actually learned fencing in high school. And we felt well-prepared. Week after week, night after night, we had executed our back and forth in the lines, our back and forth with the blunted swords until the night of dress rehearsal. The lights out to the stage with a couple friends and family there in the small auditorium at the college. We came to our big scene, we got the swords out, we accosted each other, And instead of the well-choreographed fight scene that we had worked on, it looked more like two four-year-olds with lightsabers. Just whacking away at each other until we knew we had to stop and someone had to pretend to be stabbed. It revealed that he had fallen back on all the skill he had learned about actual sword fighting, and it revealed how little skill I had in that moment of pressure and all eyes on us. And so we learn from the dress rehearsal and we cut that choreography in about half with the hope that we would actually be able to execute it during the real performance. That's the wisdom of a dress rehearsal. It reveals, under simulated pressure, whether the actors actually know their lines or know their cues, whether the set will hold up so that everyone can be ready pressure reveals. It may seem a bit strange to us to read the opening lines of this passage, which are echoed in the other gospel accounts, that Jesus isn't surprised in the desert, but Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness in order that he might be tempted. Because here, something is going to be revealed. Hence the title of this morning, Apocalypse in the Desert. We often use the language of apocalypse in thinking about the final battle when really apocalypse meaning means uncovering or revealing. And in the book of Revelation, which the Greek name is apocalypse, it was revealed the victory of Jesus, what's happening spiritually behind the scenes. And in these brief verses this morning, As Jesus is fasting and praying and the devil shows up to tempt him, things are revealed. The hope of God, the plan of God, is to reveal the character of Jesus, who he really is and what he has come to do. The devil, he has a different plan. He hopes through temptation to reveal sin, to reveal weakness, and then to use it to discredit Jesus and accuse him. That plan does not work out. But as we study this passage, it reminds us that moments of trial and temptation reveal. What do moments of tiredness, of sickness, of conflict and uncertainty reveal about us? What do they reveal about Jesus and what we think about Jesus? This morning, as we look at this passage, We're going to ask the question, what does this passage reveal to us about Jesus? What is revealed about the devil's work and how he goes about it? What's revealed to us about how we might resist and fight temptation? And lastly, what is revealed about us as Christians? This morning, I want to start with really what I believe is God's intention by the Spirit to lead Jesus into the desert is to reveal the truth of what the Spirit has already marked when the Father's voice comes from heaven at Jesus' anointing when he is baptized, that this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. It's been declared, it's been true, now he's going to reveal it in a time of difficulty. Now before we even get to the temptations, Jesus is revealed in this trial in this discipline of fasting to be devoted to and dependent upon the Father. Forty days he fasts in the desert, going to the very limits of the human body as he depends upon the Father in spiritual communion. Now, this is not just to show some religious piety, look how spiritual Jesus is, but really it is a spiritual boot camp. It is the last phase of preparation for his public ministry as he sets aside food to focus on his relationship with the Father, praying and preparing. But the reality is such feats are not unique to Jesus. Very few men or women have ever been able to fast for 40 days, but Jesus isn't the only one that's ever done it. The uniqueness here is not that Jesus fasted for 40 days. The uniqueness, the wonder, the glory of what's to be revealed is when Jesus has fasted for 40 days. When he's at his physical limitations, when he's at his most human, how he responds differently than we would. It's what happens next that is astounding. The text is perhaps a little understated when it says, he was hungry. How do you respond when you're hungry? Here, Jesus, physically weak, vulnerable, and in a needy position, is confronted with the devil who chooses to tempt him. Now, three temptations are brought out, and a light is shown upon them, but The reality is this would seem to be a period of various temptations. If you'll note, verse 13, it says this, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So the reality is is that this was probably a period of extended temptation of which these three were the foremost. And yet Jesus, utilizing God's word, reveals his faithful obedience as a faithful son. As he prepares to enter into his public ministry to proclaim the kingdom of God, to teach people what God's word really says, it is shown not only does he know God's word, but he knows the significance of God's word, that he honors it, that he obeys it. The showdown in the desert also reveals something important to us, that Jesus is powerful, that he is able to defeat the devil. Where so many who have gone before when confronted with temptation and opportunities for sin have been bested by his deceit and his wickedness. Jesus is not deceived. He is not coerced. He is not trapped. He is not worn down. He does not sin. And all of this would be sufficient reason to sit up and take notice. Who is this Jesus who is so devoted to God in prayer and fasting, who is so powerful in righteousness as to resist the evil one? This is an important figure. And that alone should give us reason to say, who is this Jesus? What is it like to know him? Should I follow him? But as Jesus obeys the Father and resists the devil, we see that Jesus is revealed to be exactly who the devil wants him to doubt he is. He is the Son of God. This is what the Father says from heaven at his baptism. It is really the last word about who Jesus is in the family line that we read last week. He is the Son of God. Now, when we think of Son of God, we often think of it as a divine title. He is divine, the second person of the Trinity. And that's true. Well, that's what Scripture reveals over time. But to the immediate audience, Son of God speaks of a relationship of divine favor. David was the Son of God because he was God's appointed king. Israel is described as God's son because they are the chosen nation. Adam, in our previous text, is the son of God because he was made of God. Whereas the devil calls this into doubt, Jesus demonstrates its truthfulness. And he is the son who is faithful where all those who bore the title before him were not. David was the anointed king. The king after God's own heart who fell into grievous and horrible sin. Jesus, anointed as king, remains faithful. Israel, the nation who was the son of God, grumbled in the desert on the way to Sinai, complaining of their hunger and of their thirst that God had brought them into the desert to die. And when they were brought to the land flowing with milk and honey, They didn't trust the Lord and ended up wandering 40 years in the wilderness. Whereas Jesus puts himself into 40 days of testing in the wilderness and will not doubt the Lord's provision. He obeys where the patriarchs didn't. Consider the temptation of the kingdoms here, the second temptation. Satan either lying or puffed up about his position, offers Jesus the authority and glory of all the kingdoms of the world. If Jesus is the Son of God, if he is the anointed one, the Messiah, these things are his birthright. All these kingdoms are his inheritance. Satan is offering him a shortcut, like Jacob who was promised the blessing and the birthright, though he was the younger one, and yet wasn't willing to wait on the Lord's provision, but he needed to trick Esau into the birthright. He needed to deceive his father Isaac into the blessing. Jesus, depending on the truthfulness that these nations are his inheritance, is unwilling to disobey where the patriarchs took shortcuts beforehand. And lastly, Jesus obeys where the original son of God, Adam, did not. When the serpent came into the garden, he asked, did God really say? And here, seeking again to twist God's word, the devil seeks to inspire doubt. Are you really the son of God, if you are really the son of God? And where our first parents transgressed, Jesus remained faithful. This desert showdown is not just a revelation of a pious, faithful, righteous man. But of a man that has come fully aware of how all those that have held that special status with God have fallen short. And where they have sinned, he has obeyed. Where others have fallen, he has been victorious. Jesus is revealed here as the Son of God without peer. God's champion to be victorious where others have fallen short. This is who Jesus shows himself to be the champion for God's people. And in that victory, he reveals the nature and work of his opponent. The second thing I want to talk about this morning is what this passage shows us, what it reveals about the devil's work. And let me just say, this passage is not a systematic theology where it outlines everything to know about Satan Satan. The evil one, the power of the devil. But it does show us some things that I want us to take into account. First, the oddness of the revelation here. Despite our culture's love of horror movies, with all kinds of manifestations of the demonic and evil, with dreadful appearances, gore, and ugliness, what's scary about Uh, the appearance of the devil is that he shows up at all, not what he looks like. And one of the interesting things when we read Scripture is how rarely he actually does show up. But when does he tend to show up? When there is someone who is walking in a way that is pleasing to God and receiving the favor of God. When God makes Adam and Eve, he says it is very good good and he blesses them to be a blessing and have dominion in the world the devil doesn't want them to enjoy the blessing of God and to have that dominion he wants that for himself and so he shows up to Adam and Eve Job is a righteous man without parallel and that's that's the one that Satan wants to attack And so suddenly, as Jesus is anointed as God's Son, who is acknowledged as beloved, this is when he wants to show up, because he wants to tempt, discredit, and accuse any of those that might enjoy the favored status of God. This is why, brothers and sisters, if we are obedient, if we are ministering, we should expect the attacks of the evil one. Not because there's something special about us, but because he wants what we have, the enjoyment of God and the power that comes from being blessed of God. That's not to say every time we have a toothache or stub our toe, it's Satan after us. And sometimes, because we are experiencing difficult things, we might be too quick to say, well, I must be righteous. That's why I'm being attacked. But we are to expect it. The next thing we see is that the devil is not omniscient. While on one hand the devil is tempting Jesus in order to get him to sin, the attacks, they're also probes. Because he doesn't fully understand what Jesus has come to do. He understands the nature of the title, he surely knows Old Testament scripture, what God has done in history and the prophecies. But he's not sure of Jesus's limits. This is an opportunity for Jesus' power maybe to be demonstrated with the bread. To ask, well, Psalm 91 says the chosen one will be protected by angels. Can you die? He doesn't know everything. Though he is powerful, he doesn't know. And so what appears as victory at the death of Christ is actually the accomplishment of victory over the evil one. He's not all-powerful. He can't make Jesus sin. And he can't make us sin. He can tempt. He can persuade. He has power that we don't. It seems in this passage that he's able to either give Jesus... A such a profound vision it's as if Jesus is in these places or perhaps even uh, Jesus allows himself to be taken to these places to have this vision of the nations or to go to the top of the temple but he can't make Jesus sin he can't destroy Jesus in the garden the serpent is cursed for his tempting to sin but Adam and Eve for their embrace of that temptation What happens is that we who are born in sin with a sinful nature unlike Jesus's are prone to go right along with the temptation. While Jesus is merely tempted externally, we struggle with an inward pull to sin. But at no point can we say, the devil made me do it. Our enemy is strong. Our enemy knows things. Our enemy has power, but he is not all-powerful. He is not all-knowing. That's why he relies on doubt and deceit. Notice that he seems to introduce doubt. Did God really say, are you really the son? Would God really want you, if you are his son, to be hungry? If you're hungry, make these stones into bread. Like with the Israelites in the wilderness, the devil seeks to tempt Jesus by doubting the father's care for him. Calvin kind of rewords this first temptation. It's as if Satan is saying, When you see that you are forsaken by God, you are driven by necessity to attend to yourself. Provide then the food for yourself with which God does not supply you. Does God care for you? Does God really give you what you need? Can you be the Son of God if you're suffering hunger and want? He sows seeds of doubt. And he does so through means of deceit. On one hand, he lies. He lied to Adam and Eve, saying, you will not surely die. But he also does it through misdirection. Notice that the devil doesn't say to Jesus in these temptations, you know you should go rob a bank. You should go gossip about all of those Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the evil things that they are doing. You should go murder Caesar in his sleep because he is a false emperor. Jesus isn't tempted overtly to the acts of sin. Rather, in sowing the seeds of doubt to test God, to worship someone other than God, he offers Jesus good things food when he's hungry, authority that is rightly his, protection, comfort, assurance. Good things can be twisted. Even Scripture. The devil here quotes Psalm 91 in hopes that Jesus will show himself to be the hinted Messiah, or at least be deceived into falling to his death. But Jesus won't let the good of Scripture be twisted to deny his mission. Rarely is it violence, rarely is it theft, rarely is it murder, rarely is it alcoholism that people are attracted to or tempted with, but rather its accomplishment. It's dignity, it's vindication, it's justice, it's physical comfort that are held out before us as ends that we can achieve for the use of means that God hasn't granted us. These are what are offered that we then try to get with violence, deception, theft. Good ends do not justify sinful means as much as the evil one might want to convince us otherwise. Even that which is rightly Jesus's, what he is rightly capable of, what is his rightful inheritance, he will not take, he will not grab, apart from trusting dependence and obedience. Which brings us to the revelation, well, how does Jesus do this? How does Jesus resist temptation? Notice he does so by knowing and relying on the truth. On one hand, we see this in Jesus as he uses scripture to combat the lies and the temptations from the devil. But why does he use scripture? Is it because Bible verses are magic words that if we just say John 3.16 or some other favorite Bible verse that Satan must run away because he's scared of Bible words? No. Jesus is utilizing scripture because scripture is the true word of God that tells us the truth of who God is. It tells us the truth of who we are. It tells us the truth of how we are to live in light of who God is, what he has done, and who we are. That's hinted at if we are to pay attention to the verses that Jesus quotes. Jesus knows Scripture very well, and as we follow the rest of his ministry, we'll see him quote various parts of Scripture. But all of these quotes come from a narrow band of Scripture from Deuteronomy 6 through 8. As God's people are about to go into the Promised Land, after their parents' generation had disobeyed God, distrusted Him, Moses says to the people in Deuteronomy 6, Remember who God is. The Lord your God is one. In Deuteronomy 7, he reminds them of God's faithful covenant promises to them, not because there was anything special about them, but because of his love for them. And in Deuteronomy 8, he calls them to live obediently to that. Jesus is holding on to the truth of who God is as the only one to be worshipped. On the truth that he is loved by God In eternal relationship with him. And the the enjoyment of the love, the enjoyment of the benefits of knowing God come through enjoying him in obedience and faithfulness. See how that works here. Why scripture is such a powerful tool? Because circumstances or our limited knowledge or our tiredness or hunger or our deep pain may say untrue things to us. If you're hungry, does God provide for you? If you're hurting, does he care for you? If God has promised this thing to you, why don't you have it yet? God's word speaks the truth. God's word reminds us of who God is, who we are, and how we are to live as his people. Brothers and sisters, that's why the elders and I said, let's spend some time as a church in scripture memorization. Yes, it seems a bit hokey for adults, like they're back in third grade to recite these verses together. But the point of that is not so we can check a box and say, oh, I know more verses than someone else does. It's not so that we can sharpen our memorization against the onslaught of memory loss. It is because this is a tool, this is a weapon that God has given us against the attacks of the evil one. That when we know what God's word says and when we know what it means, we, following the example of Jesus, might use it to pierce the cloud of deceit and darkness and doubt that the devil would weave for us. We are arming our children, we are arming the church against the attacks of the evil one who would waylay us in our work and our service to glorify God. Which brings us to what Jesus in the obe- his obedience in the desert means for us. What does this passage reveal? What does this confrontation in the desert reveal about us? That Jesus is our hope and that Jesus is our strength. We aren't Jesus and we have not obeyed like Jesus. I haven't just disobeyed the Lord when I'm angry or sad or tired or hungry. I've disobeyed him well-fed, well-loved, with money in my bank account and eight hours of sleep. I know the same is probably true for you. We have succumbed to temptation and sin, not just in times of intense testing and weakness, but also caught unawares in comfort and ease, where we've wanted to hold on to that comfort and ease more than pleasing our Heavenly Father. But where we have doubted, where we have been deceived, where we have disobeyed, Jesus has trusted, he has obeyed, and he has won the victory. When you look at this passage, yes, I want you to know how to fight temptation. Yes, I want you to consider the way in which Satan works. Yes, I want you to memorize and know more scripture that you would be armored for the fight. But I do not want you to miss that this passage is here. This passage has been held on to according to the Spirit's work for the history and edification of the church because there is no hope, no man, no woman who can do what Jesus has done. And yet he did it for you. And he did it for me. When the devil points out your failures, your sins in order to shame you, to cause us to run and hide from God like Adam and Eve did in the garden, trying to clothe themselves with fig leaves. Instead of saying, this is how I have fallen short, we claim what Christ has done in our place. This passage reveals our hope when we have fallen short. And if we have claimed what Jesus has done as our hope, As the one who obeyed when we didn't, the one who died in our place, the one that rose and is our only hope for salvation and right relationship with God, he is not only our hope to fight and not fall into temptation, but he is our strength. I wish I had another half an hour to unpack this, but let me make this clear. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the spirit of Jesus is in you. The newness of life in Christ is at work in you. The strength of Jesus is in you. We are able to fight with the same strength and power and holy standing as Jesus because he has gifted all that is his to us when we lean on him in faith. 1 John 4 as. The apostle encourages the church to confront untrue things and false spirits says, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You are not fighting this battle alone. It is not you and Satan in the desert. It's not you and the evil one outside the schoolyard. The one fighting in you and with you is the very one who died in your place and yet defeated satan when he came a calling when paul speaks to the ephesians saying you don't just wrestle with things of flesh and blood but of the principalities and the powers of the air he calls them to put on the armor of god not your armor not your strength not your intelligence Notice as he describes the armor of God. It is what God gives us in Jesus. The belt of truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The breastplate of righteousness. By whose righteousness do we stand before God? Jesus' We have the shoes of readiness given by the good news of peace. Who accomplished that peace for us? Jesus. We wear the helmet of salvation. We are protected what Jesus accomplished for us the sword of the spirit which is the word of God that is Jesus spirit testifying to what is true we fight not with our own strength but going to the Lord in prayer we are strengthened in Jesus spirit at work in us to fight to resist to obey with the power of Jesus Christ your hope when you disobey is in Christ and yet your hope that you don't have to disobey is Jesus I'm not sure what you are going to face this afternoon, this week, or in the coming months. Maybe it will be ease. Maybe it will be things that feel like 40 days of no food. My invitation to you this morning is that wherever you go, do not go apart from Christ with you. For it is His truth and His hope and power by which we can resist the temptations of the evil one. What he did for us is our hope. and It is his word that will remind us of who God is, what he wants from us, and the fact that we can enjoy being God's people, not because of how good we are, but because Jesus was perfectly righteous in times of blessing, in times of want, in times of hunger. May temptation, may times of trial reveal in us the Savior who obeyed where we didn't, that his, what his salvation means for us, so that others may see his power at work in us. Let's pray. Lord, our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in your truth. May you show your truth to us that we might walk in it for your glory. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.